If you have your Bible, would you turn with me please to the book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. I do hope that you have your Bible with you this morning. There are two or three other passages that I will ask you to look with me at these passages in just a few moments as we move through our message in the book of Malachi. But you might want to put your worship folder or something else in the place at Malachi, for that is our text in the first chapter, verses 6 through 14. To our musicians, thank you. As always, we are indebted to you. And we realize that this is your ministry to the Lord. This is your offering to the Lord. And that you allow us the blessing of sharing in that with you is a great encouragement to our hearts and to our souls. Thank you for your music. Thank you very much. Curtis, did you teach your granddaughter all that that she didn't? Uh, (laughs) And he said that knowing he was in church. (laughs) Thank you, young lady. Thank you. Beautifully done. Pray with me, please. Our Father, we have opened before us that which you have said was a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And there's not anyone who'd question, we live in a dark world. And we need a lamp and we need a light that is dependable, that is from heaven. And the book we have before us is the only book that is from heaven. Not only have you given us your precious and inerrant word, but you have given the Spirit of God to be our teacher relieving us of the responsibility of being dependent upon men and women to teach us the Scriptures. You are the ultimate teacher of Scripture. Thank you. Help us, our Father, to love you more than we love ourselves. Help us to love and to read your Word more than any other book that we have. And may we be more like Jesus because of that. We ask it in His name. Amen. If God loves us, why does He allow sickness? If God loves us, why are there wars all over the globe? If God loves us, why does He allow suffering? All of us have heard these questions. They are not new. From time immemorial, these questions have been raised in every generation by countless numbers of people. If God loves us, and then there's something that comes after that. Why? Whatever it is. But when the nation Israel asked such questions, it was not the reflection of a gentle, seeking heart, asking information from our Heavenly Father. For Israel, their questions reflected an attitude of skepticism. They were filled with doubts and with unbelief. Disbelief, excuse me. And their attitude of skepticism led them to have an argumentative spirit. Now, when I first thought about this and first began to put pen to paper and and prepare for the message, I thought, how in the world... How in the world could anybody argue with God? But I was convicted of that 
And I cannot personally be too hard with the nation Israel and I hope we will see them for what they were and did. And I hope that you will allow the Spirit of God to make application to our hearts. I have argued with God. Now if you haven't, you might as well go to sleep. Because the rest of the message is not going to be for you. If you've never argued with God, just you got another 30 minutes of RIP. Rest in peace. If I see you sleeping, I'm going to know you're probably not telling me the truth. Israel's questioning of God came out of an attitude of skepticism. They were filled with doubts. And their attitude of skepticism led them to an argumentative spirit. They argued with the Almighty God who said to them, I love you. And they argued with Him. But their attitude of skepticism and their argumentative spirit were only symptoms of a greater problem for the nation. And that greater problem was they failed to respond appropriately to the love of God. God said to these people, I love you. And they said, we don't see that. And that void that was created by their absence of the love for God into that void came all kinds of evil. And these evils invaded the priesthood. We begin this morning by looking at the priests' disrespect for God. The leaders of the nation Israel had a genuine, long-standing disrespect for God. And it was evident for all to see. They didn't hide it. It wasn't when they gathered in the temple precincts, they got together and said, let's disrespect God. It was open. Everything in the temple was open. They could see the priests, their leaders, disrespecting God. And rather than rising up against that, they followed them. They followed them. The priests' disrespect for God, chapter 1 of Malachi, verses 6 through 8. Verse 6 opens with these words, A son honoreth his father. And a servant is master. God begins with a principle here, a principle of respect, and he assumes that to be true. Notice he does not say in verse 6, a son is supposed to honor his father. God makes the assumption that that's true. A son loves his father. Now on what basis does God assume that to be true? It was based on the Ten Commandments. Because you see in the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment says, Honor your father and your mother. And I think it is significant. A lot of Bible teachers before me, wiser than I, have said that the Fifth Commandment is a bridge to the Ten Commandments. The first four and the last four. The bridge is honor your father and your mother. The first four, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those first four commandments deal with man's responsibility to God. 
Commandments 6 through 10 deal with relationships among people. And the bridge between those two sections is honor your father and your mother. Hear me well. I am deeply convicted and believe that if men fail to honor their parents, they will neither honor God nor other men. And that's why it's stated so often by so many and for over so many hundreds of years that the the fifth commandment is the bridge. And if there's failure on the bridge, then men will not honor God, nor will they honor other men, which the last commandments state, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, and thou shalt not covet. The hinge is the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. The Apostle Paul pays respect to that command in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I want to pursue this just a bit further and speak about how critical this commandment was and is in the Bible and to God. Turn with me, please. Keep your place in, in, in Malachi. But turn with me, if you please, to Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 and following. 21 of Deuteronomy, 18 and following. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of the city, the gateway of his hometown. They shall say that his mother and father shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is rebellious and stubborn. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then, verse 21, all the men of his city shall stone him to death. Now, of course, we do not do this today. We are not under the Mosaic economy. But I think you can see where this would put the fear of God in the hearts of a lot of young people. Don't misunderstand me. I'm, don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating this at all. I'm simply trying to point out the importance of children honoring their parents. Listen to me. God was serious about this. Young people today, you may think mom and dad are serious about this. But you have no idea how serious God was about it until you see this. God was in earnest about this matter of children honoring their mother and their father. Malachi says, verse 6, a son honors his father. And next he says, a servant honors his master. And we are living in a day when employees seldom respect their superiors anymore. But the basic principle that God starts with is a son honors his father and a servant honors his master. And now I want you to notice the application and the principle here. Look at verse 6 again. Back to the book of Malachi. And in verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Verse goes on. Then if I am a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my respect? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. This is the question to the priests. Where's my honor? Where's my respect? And he speaks to the priest directly. But you say, that is the children of Israel say, when God says this, you say, how have we despised thy name? Argumentative spirit. How have we done this? 
in verse 6, the word if, then if I am a father, and if I am a master, could be rendered since. And I believe it should be rendered since I am your father. Since I am your master. There's no question about this. Israel was God's son. Israel was God's servant. Perhaps you have some recollection of way back in the book of Exodus, God calling Moses and commissioning him to go down into Egypt and to bring his people out. And when God said that to Moses, he said, I have called Israel my son, even my firstborn. Dear people, we need, I promised myself I wouldn't, I would try not to spend too much time on this, but I've got to say it. It's here. I've got to say it. This means that of all the nations of the earth ever have been, ever will be, or are today, of all the nations of the earth, God chose Israel to inherit His promises and that has never been abrogated. Never. I don't care what a politician says. God chose Israel and promised them that they would inherit from Him. They were His Son. And that was by His decree. And that was by His choice. And how anyone who claims to know anything about God's Word can say that the promises of God belong to the church or the promises of God in the Bible that go to Israel, that have mentioned to Israel, they don't really belong to Israel anymore. We've got some theologians who are saying that the promises of God that He made to Israel actually belong to the church. That is not true. That is not true. We've got politicians who say the promises in the Bible, well, they, first of all, they laugh at them. But then they would say, well, that's not true either. God, Hear me well. God has not abrogated the fact that Israel is His Son and He chose them of all the nations that ever have been or ever will be and said, they will inherit from Me. God said that. Israel was His Son. Well, that leads to the next question. He speaks about being a servant. When did Israel become God's servant? If you'll take your Bible and turn back with me, please, to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Now, the Ten Commandments are in the 20th chapter, but you have to back up, and and you know this as well as I, uh, from chapter 19, uh, it opens with Israel, it says they came out of the wilderness, and Israel camped in front of the mountain, last part of verse 2. Verse 3 says, and Moses went up to God, the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, uh, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob. And it goes on through there. And then if you'll come down with me to verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders. He's come back from the mountain. He came now and called the elders, it says in verse 7, and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. That's the Ten Commandments and, and the other commandments as well. And the people answered... And when Moses presented this to them, I don't know exactly what his words were, but he must have said something like, this is a contract. I have been given this by God, and God has told me to give this to you. This is a contract. If you sign this, you will become his servants. Moses came again, verse 7, called the people and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. Now, what do people say? 
Look at the next verse. And all the people, not some of them, it wasn't 20% of them, it wasn't 60% of them, all the people, 100% of them said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All of the law, we will do. Israel became God's servant. When offered the contract, they said everything God said we'll do. And by virtue of their agreement, they became servants of God. So, in Malachi, the principle has been set forth. A son honors his father, and a servant honors his master. And it is established then that Israel is a son, and that Israel is a servant of God. Now, come back with me again to verses 6 and 7 of Malachi chapter 1. Verse 6, once again, a son honors his father and a servant his master. And since I am a father, where is my honor? And since I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. He's speaking to the priest, but he, he puts in there, O priests who despise my name. But in your argumentative spirit, you say, have we despised your name? Have we done that? I want you to look at our text carefully. The first of these questions, where's my honor? Second is, where's my respect? These two questions are not answered. The answer is simply assumed. God has not received His honor. God has not received the respect that is due Him, to which He is entitled. Then to prove these two propositions that He has not received honor, that He has not received respect, It's because, first of all, he says in verse 6, you have despised my name. And second, you have offered defiled food on the altar. He says that in verse 7. Again, how do the priests respond? They simply offer a tired refrain. Verse 7, he says, you are presenting this defiled food on my altar. Verse 8 defines that word food for us. It refers to sacrifice, animal sacrifice. You are presenting defiled food, defiled sacrifices upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled thee? In that you say, the table of the Lord is despised. Now, a word or two to further try to explain. To prove his first allegation, you have despised my name. God says, the table of the Lord is despised. How? How were the priests despising the table of the Lord? Well, what did these priests do all day long? You know, they were glorified butchers. It was their duty when people brought animals for sacrifice to prepare that animal for sacrifice. They had to kill the animal. They had to skin it. They had to gut it. They had to cut it up and prepare it to be offered on the altar. Hear me. Their hands were always bloody. Their hands were always bloody. And they began to look on the altar of the Lord because of that. They began to look on the altar of the Lord as a despicable thing. They despised it. They held it in contempt. And when they held the table of the Lord in contempt, they were holding the name of God and God Himself in contempt. It was His table. They they were disrespectful to that. They dishonored that. And in that, they were dishonoring and disrespecting 
God, for it was his table. They were despising the name of the Lord. Hear me well, folks. This book does apply to me and to you. And I'll come back to this in a few moments. The fundamental principle here is the way we look at serving God reflects on God. May I say that again? The way we look on serving God reflects on God. The priests looked at the altar with contempt. God offers that as proof that they despised His name. The way they looked on serving God was a reflection on God Himself. The second allegation against Israel that they have offered defiled food is supported in verse 8. Look at the first part of verse 8. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Would you offer this to your governor? That must, even in the condition that the priests were in, that had to penetrate somebody in there, that, that group I would think. Would you do this to your governor? And of course the answer is no. No. I mentioned a while ago, some of your Bibles in this section, particularly verse 7, use the word bread or food in verse 7. But we know in the next from the next verse that it refers to animal sacrifice. We know that because verse 8 speaks of the sacrifices being lame, or blind, or sick. What were the priests doing? They were offering grade B sacrifices on the altar. They were offering grade B sacrifices on the altar. Lame, blind, sick. Is that what God wanted? Was God satisfied when they brought grade B sacrifices to the temple to be offered? Take your Bible one more time, please, and turn back with me to the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus chapter 22. Leviticus chapter 22. Leviticus 22, verse 20, starting in verse 20. 22, 20 of Leviticus. Whatever has a defect, you will not offer, for it will not be accepted from you. And when a man offers uh, a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or a free will offering of the herd of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. It shall have no defect in it. And then if that wasn't clear enough, verse 22 says, those that are blind, fractured, maimed, having running sore, eczema, scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar of the Lord. You see what was happening? You see the reasoning here? Israel was offering to the Lord things they would not offer to their governor. God says, would the governor accept this? Would you offer it to the governor? Answer, of course, no. But we'll bring it to the temple and offer it to God. Dr. McGee says, here's how this might happen. Imagine there's a man living in the hill country of Ephraim who had a prize bull. He had prize cattle. In fact, every year he would come home from the fat stock show with a blue ribbon. But one day, his prize bull gets sick. And he calls for the veterinarian. The veterinarian says, I don't think he's going to make it. I think your prize bull is going to die. 
And so the man very quickly says, well, let's load him on the wagon and rush him down to the temple where I'll offer him as a sacrifice. Man brings the bull. The people, wow, look at what this man's going to offer to the Lord. The priests know that the bull is dying. But they go through with the sacrifice because this man happens to be a prominent fellow who lives in the hill hill country of Ephraim. The people respect him because look at what he's offering to God. And the people didn't know. The priests did. And that shows enormous disrespect. You're going to offer to God that which you wouldn't give to your governor. Dr. McGee has a way of putting it. He sums up the whole thing by saying, God doesn't want your sick cow! The priest's disrespect for God was open and flagrant. That brings us to the priest's disapproval by God in verses 9-14. through 14. Verse 9, Now when you entreat God's favor that He may be gracious with us with such an offering on your part, will He receive it kindly? says the Lord of hosts. And verse 8 needs to, to, to be prefaced there again. Uh, verse 8 talks about offering to the governor. And then verse 9 says, well, you're going to offer this thing to God? Will He be pleased with this? Will He receive this kindly? Your governor wouldn't. You see what God said in verse 10? Let me read that. Well, hold, let me hold that for just a second. Here's the disapproval in verse verses 9 and 10 of the priests and their service. Verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you. Oh, there was one priest among you, you say in verse 10, who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. God is saying to Israel, it would be better if one of the priests had the, 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 the fortitude just to go close the door to the temple. I'm not pleased with this sacrifice. It will not be accepted from you as a sacrifice. He was saying that no service, close the temple door, no service is better than half-hearted service. And that is an eternal principle. No service is better than half-hearted service. You remember what, what's the first and greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Love the Lord God with all that you are. And God says, no service is better than lukewarm service. Verse 11 explains why God didn't want or need half-hearted service. For from the rising of the sun even to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, not just among, not just in Israel, but among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name, a grain offering that is pure. For my, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 11 is an explanation of why God doesn't need their half-hearted, lukewarm service. The God of Israel says, there's coming a time when my name will be honored and revered among all the nations on the earth, including yours. And today, God says to Israel in our text, I don't need your half-hearted service now. There's coming a day when Israel will honor my name, all of Israel, when all the nations will honor my name. 
And in light of what will ultimately take place, he tells Israel, I don't need your half-hearted service. The indictment continues against the priests in verse 12 and following. Verse 12, but you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say how tiresome this is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery, what is lame and sick, you bring for an offering. Should I receive them from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed is the swindler who has a male of his flock and who vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. There were some who made vows. Children of Israel made vows to the Lord. And time came to pay the vow. And they only did it in a half-hearted fashion. If they had promised to give of their herds, like the man that we've illustrated, they would bring a sick animal, one that was lame, one that was blind. Verse 13, there is a word there that I have a hard time dealing with. The priests in Israel said, your service, O God, is tiresome to me. I'm tired of it. These statements were made regarding the priests in Israel. Let's keep that in context, all right? These statements were made with respect to and regarding the priests in Israel and the people in Israel. But I wonder if some of us in church in 2015 don't often think the Lord's work is tiresome. Oh, um, another Sunday. Another Sunday school class to teach. Oh my, I'm just tired. Another Sunday school class to sit through. I'm tired of doing that too. Another anthem to sing. Oh, I've got to usher again. I'm just tired of this. Why do I have to do these things? And then, as I mentioned a while ago, verse 14 indicates the vows. Some people make a vow to God and only be half-hearted in repaying the vow that they promised to make. I say again, these statements are an indictment of the priests in Israel. But I wonder, I wonder, is there anything that we can learn out of this little Old Testament book of Malachi that God took a man by the name of Malachi, and that's all we know about him, and gave to him a message to, to deliver a burden. It was a burden to Malachi. Remember we talked about that? It was a burden to Malachi. He didn't want to, he, he knew the, the, the strength of the message, and it was heavy on his heart to deliver the message. So it was spoken to them, but, you know, the Apostle Paul thought that there were some things that we should learn. For the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15, you don't need to turn there. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says, Whatsoever things were written in earlier times were written for our learning. Whatsoever things were written in Malachi, by Malachi, were written for our learning. Paul thought there was something that we needed to learn from this. I want to suggest three things. Number one, 
God wants our very best. God wants our very best. The best that we have is none too good to be offered to God. He wants the best of our time. He doesn't want the leftovers of our time. We work 40, 50 hours a week. We mow the lawn, men. We do what we need to do. We take care of the vehicles and whatever else. And we think we've done something when we give God two hours on Sunday morning. God wants our very best. And you answer this question from the text. From the text that we've had this morning. You ask, answer the question from the text. Is God satisfied with less than our best? Is God satisfied with less than our very best? Second, we ought to give God our very best because of who He is. We ought to give God our very best because of who He is. If you will look at verse 14 of chapter 1, it speaks of Him as the Lord and the great King. We ought to give Him our very best because of who He is. Third, we ought to give God our very best because of what He has done for us. He wants our best. He's the great King who deserves our best. And we ought to give to Him our very best because of what He has given to us. You have a spouse. God gave her to you. You have children. God gives you children. You have a home. You have a job. God gave those things. And this is not to mention all of the spiritual blessings that He's given to us. We ought to give Him the very best of everything because of what He has given to us. That's what He desires. Is that where we are as Christian people? Is that where we are as Christian people? Can we affirm that's what we do? Pray with me. Father, these verses speak to us. They were given by Malachi the prophet. They were given from God through Malachi the prophet to the nation Israel. And the section we've looked at this morning was given particularly to the priests, the leaders. The Apostle Paul said there's some things we need to learn in this. We need to be reminded that God wants our very best. He doesn't want our lukewarmness. He doesn't want our half-hearted giving of our time, of ourselves, of our possessions. God wants our best. We ought to give Him our best because He is the Lord. He is the great King. We ought to give Him the best we have because of what He has given to us. Convict our hearts, we pray, O God, that so often we get tired of the Lord's work. And we don't give Him what really is our best. We ask Your forgiveness. And may the Spirit of God work in our hearts to prompt us, to bring us to where You want us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. My dear friend, I don't know where all of you are in terms of your walk with the Lord. I don't know whether everyone in this room this morning is in the family of God yet or not.
whatever your need, if you are a child of God, if you will take it to Him, He hears and He answers prayer. You have a burden this morning? Somebody surely does in a group of people this size. Somebody is here with a heavy heart. I don't know who that is. But God does. If you'll take it to Him, you will find relief. It may be there's someone here who's not yet come to faith in Christ. I don't know who that is either. But I do know this. He died for you. He loves you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. You haven't done anything in your life. If you look back over your life and you say, I know I can't be forgiven of that. May I very, very kindly say to you, you're wrong. You're wrong. You haven't done one single thing in all of your life that God will not forgive if you'll take it to Him. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, He calls you to come to Him. He died for you. He loves you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will give you a home in heaven. But you've got to come to Jesus. He's the only way to heaven. I urge you to do that today if you've never done it. Service will be over in just two or three minutes. But you can do that anytime. You can do that where you're seated. You can do that when you get home. You can do that anytime. So if you're here with a burden, if you're here and not yet part of the family of God, I urge you to take it to Him. Whatever you need, He has and will do for you. May God speak to all of our hearts for all of us have needs. Take them to Him. For those who are our guests, as you leave this morning, one of our men, one of our deacons or one of our ushers will be on the left side, my left side out here with a little package that we want to give to all who are our guests. It may be that we have somebody here this morning who doesn't have a Bible. It's yours. On my left, as you leave the building this morning, there are Bibles in a basket there. It's our gift to you. If you do not have a Bible, please take one. It's our gift. I want you to have a Bible. I want you to have one in your home. I want you to have one you can access freely, anytime. Our deacon of the day is Tom Lowell. Tom will dismiss us in prayer. Please greet one another in the name of the Lord. Somebody needs a word of encouragement here. I said to you, all of us have needs. Somebody needs a word of encouragement from you. So take a minute and visit before you leave. May God give you grace and peace in Him today. God bless you. Tom, if you'll pray for us, please. Would you bow with me, please? Father, we uh, have heard a lot about defilement this morning. Defiled priests, defiled offerings, defiled people. Thank you, Lord, that uh, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that defilement in our lives has been removed. And Paul in Romans has urged us to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to you. Father, help us as we look to you for strength and guidance in our daily lives.
to be acceptable to you. Living sacrifices, testimonies of your grace, and through that, Lord, may others be drawn to Christ through us. Lord, we think of our missionaries, Fran and Judy Schmidt in Guatemala, and pray for them this morning as they teach and mentor Guatemalans in the word so that they can go out and plant churches. We pray, Father, that you would give them strength and encouragement. Bless them, I pray. For those of our congregation that are struggling physically, that we're aware of, I pray for them, for Tom, for Don, for Claudia, for Etta, for Joe, for Barbara, for a young missionary kid who's wandering spiritually and physically in the great city of Amsterdam. Pray, Father, that you would draw his heart back to you. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege you give us from week to week to come to worship you, to fellowship one with another. And as we go out these doors this morning, back into our daily lives, may we be better equipped spiritually, more confident as we look to you to be salt and light to a world in great need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.